the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I can't believe that there could really be actual love in a, in a person like that. I think that kind of person is just really devoid of love. And that's, that's chilling. And that's when I think to myself, like, wow, I work with this person. We live and work and interact with those kind of people among us all the time. And we probably just very, very rarely ever know that. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And today is part two of Tony Vick. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, you're going to be very, very confused. And this week, so go binge it and uh, then press play on this bad boy. Yes. So, Billy, we got to jump in to the day before we begin our episode. Yes. It is October 13th. And it's International Day of Failure. I love that. I was hoping. My day. I was hoping. There actually are so, so so many many days days today. And there are a lot of good ones. We can go through them. But the International Day of Failure is just so on brand for everybody, I feel like. I want to know the origin of this day. Like, aren't you guys intrigued to know more? Oh, yeah. (laughs) The picture is a ship (laughs) on its side. It's a ship sinking. Yeah, Yeah, I feel that. That resonates um, with everyone, I think. It's created in Finland. The day celebrates failures and aims for people to look at them as learning experiences to help achieve success. That's from checkaday.com. <laughs> wow. Who thought of that day? <laughs> Probably Finland. somebody who's failed a no, lot nothing, in their life. Nothing like Scandinavians to really <laughs> set the mood. I know. What's well, also positive. There's also, uh, it's. National No Bra Day, which I am here for pretty much every day of the year. So this is a day to celebrate, I feel like. Everyone, take your bra off. Burn it if you must. Throw it out the window. Whatever you got to do. Throw it at Jared on stage at a main concert. Whatever gets you going. (laughs) It would be a first. (laughs) What other days are there, Billy? Or Jared. National Bring Your Teddy Bear to Work and School Day. Don't do that. You'll be mocked by your peers and probably fired. (laughs) That, that doesn't really nothing weird. instills confidence about a person or like you know assurance that someone can do a job they're hired to do like bringing their binky to work with them. I mean yeah. I don't know if that's no, no, no. I want to know. I don't. I don't want to know who came up with that day because oh, sad, sad. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure it was a teddy bear uh, company. Probably, it was probably a, a teddy bear. bear. Probably a teddy yeah. bear who did it. Yeah. <laughs> Any other good ones? It's treat yourself day. <laughs> Okay, Billy, say that again. Treat yourself. <laughs> treat treat yourself. yourself. From Parks and Rec, you've never have you guys watched yeah. Parks and Rec? Yes, but yeah, you like, are doing yourself. it. You sound treat yourself. Oh, geez. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, like, Aziz. I'm like sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> you sound like a goddamn robot. All right. Well, <laughs> you sound like Siri trying to say treat yourself. <laughs> treat yourself. Day. <laughs> there was a lot of good days go celebrate a day of failure everyone and uh i think that that is enough of that so let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you
By the time Tony Vick was 31 years old, he'd been prosecuted for bank fraud, posed as royalty in an attempt to scam a Tennessee boys club out of $500,000, been connected to suspicious fires, had attempted to start a cult, and convinced those around him that he could communicate with the dead. And worst of all, he'd been uncomfortably close to a number of highly suspicious deaths. Most glaring of these was that of his 31-year-old wife, Amy, who was found dead in the master bathroom of the Nashville home she and Tony shared. As a result of these deaths, Tony had received more than $500,000 in insurance payouts. Somehow, Tony had evaded consequences for these sins, despite the cloud of suspicion that had hovered over him. That is, until the inexplicable disappearance of his second wife, 39-year-old Kathy Beadle. It was Kathy's disappearance that thrust Tony's name, who was then 35, into the media spotlight front and center, causing law enforcement to dig into Tony's past and revisit the deaths that some had suspected he had something to do with, but never had the evidence to prove it. Our first degree Gigi was there watching this play out in the media and was floored to learn the truth about the man she once worked with. And if you remember from last week's episode, Gigi worked not only with Tony, but she also worked with his first wife, Amy, too. Gigi recalls what it was like to interact with Tony day to day. It was just that that gut feeling that something just never felt quite right. If I said, oh, hey, Tony, how you doing this morning? You know, whatever, when I'm walking past and the response I would get. It's just like a slight smile or a nod of the head. To me, that's not typical interaction. It wasn't until later when the whole mess came up with Kathy, that's when it all came up about, you know, looking back into Amy's case. I interacted with Amy on several occasions. We knew each other's names and, you know, could say hi to each other. And that was that was really about it. And I knew that she was made to Tony. Here is what we already know, that Kathy Beadle, Tony's second wife, she would ultimately vanish. But what we don't know is what led up to Kathy's untimely disappearance. So here's the story of what happened after Kathy Beadle's path became intimately intertwined with Tony's. And you know the drill. We got to go back to the beginning. Amy Vick's death in April of 1993 marked the beginning of Tony and Kathy Beadle's relationship. Because if you recall, Kathy Beadle lived across the street from Tony and Amy. And Tony called her to help resuscitate Amy when he allegedly found her in the bathroom unresponsive. It made sense. After all, Kathy was a respiratory therapist who worked at Vanderbilt University. So who better to help render aid to someone who had drowned and stopped breathing? Almost immediately after Amy's death, Tony's courting of Kathy began. At that time, Kathy had twin daughters and a 10-year-old son. Tony was now a widower, and Kathy was too. Kathy's husband had been a National Guardsman, and he died in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, during a military plane accident years prior. So it seemed like a match made in heaven. And we are looking at a picture of Kathy right now. Lex, give me a little description of what she's looking like. She has like bombshell blonde hair. Like very Her hair. Yeah. Incredible. It's beautiful. And it's very like if Dolly Parton had short hair, that's what it would look like. And yeah, I don't know how else to explain it because I don't know the name of the style, but she's wearing a dress in one of those fo- these photos that has a big bow. She looks like a, a Southern belle, like kind of 
eccentric clothing too. Like I really am into her look. She's wearing these big chandelier earrings. She just looks gorgeous. Yeah, like full face of makeup, red lip, like very, very glam, I feel like, for the totally. time. Yes. Totally. And, and and she's in one of these pictures with Tony. Tony is wearing a tuxedo. They are leaning on a uh, a column, like almost like it's like a, like at the prom or something like that. Yeah. Honestly, it's like what Tom's one hour photo. I was just like, going to say you that. Were. I was like, it was very reminiscent of our photo shoot at Tom's one hour photo where we were all leaning on that column. Um, yes. It's very like, yeah, like Glamour it reminds shots. me of glamour shots like those mall pictures or like a jc penny photo shoot almost it's but really very cute. really epic photo so kathy and tony's romance blossomed rather quickly and according to news reports from the tennessean tony pulled out all the stops he was showering kathy with flowers with gifts diamonds and expensive dinners he was writing love letters bonding with her children you name it this guy was doing it And, you know, any woman would obviously be really happy with this. But for a widowed single mom, I'm sure that she was absolutely thrilled to be swept off her feet. And by the way, there is a term for people when they're doing this, and it is called love bombing. Love bombing is when somebody is dazzling their target with these over-the-top gestures, extravagant gifts, and emotionally charged words and promises of the future that do not align with the normal pacing of a relationship. Right. And it seems kind of harmless, right? Being showered with gifts and affection. But it's really not because the love bomber generally is doing this with the intent of luring in and gaining control over their target. And motives for this behavior varies. And some just get off on it and do it for fun, for validation. Some want something from the victim. And only time would tell what Tony was after in this scenario. So obviously, uh, love bombing is sort of this abstract concept unless you apply it to tangible things. And like, Jack, have you experienced love bombing in your life? Oh, yes, Alexis. I sure have experienced (laughs) love bombing in my life. Um, And I think a lot of our listeners have as well because it can happen a bunch of different ways, right? But the whole thing with love bombing is it usually happens in the very, very beginning of your relationship. And you're thrown all of these words and things that are maybe should be happening after months or years in a relationship. For me personally, with the person that was love bombing me, uh, he told me he loved me after like 48 hours. Our first date was on a helicopter. It was always these like over the top, extravagant, expensive dates and things. And then the word, it was just like, I'm going to love you forever. You're going to be the mother of my children. We're going to be together forever. And it's just like, you do not know this person. But I think as, you know, an empathetic person, a lot of people, women that want to just be in love, you kind of get sucked in with these words because it's exactly what you want to hear. Yeah. And I think uh, love bombers in particular are really smart because they start acting shitty eventually. But the target is like clinging to the hope that that person who they met who love bombed them will return. So women let people get away with it for, for with shitty behavior for a long time, hoping that will come back. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, uh, you know, most people that love bomb, you're a lot of psychopaths or like narcissistic personalities, um, are the types of people that do this. And what they do is they really latch on to people's, their partners insecurities and their doubts and their vulnerabilities. And they'll use, they'll learn to use those against them in the future when they do, you know, flip the switch and turn into like an absolute nightmare to be around. So it's definitely like gaining their victim's trust, making them really close and need them and then using that against them. 100%. All right. So 
of course, Kathy would have had no idea that Tony had ulterior motives. Because remember, she had known and been friends with Tony and Amy as a neighbor and had seen that idyllic facade Tony had curated within that relationship. And it's probable that Tony also exploited his loss of Amy to appear as a victim of tragic circumstances. Okay, so here's what else we know about Kathy. In 1993, she was living on about $70,000, much of it being tax-free Social Security and workers' comp benefits, all stemming from the loss of her husband, who was in the military. And apparently, Kathy was also about to receive more than a million dollars as a settlement from his death. Okay, so this helps us understand why Tony may have locked in and love-bombed her. Based on all we know of him already, there's no doubt that Tony had his eye on that money. And outwardly, it appeared as though Tony and Kathy had a really warm relationship. They enjoyed traveling, and they were taking these cruises all around the world. And by all accounts, they really seemed like they were in love. And according to the police file, there was a letter that Tony had given Kathy, and it read, quote, My darling, I find myself thinking of you constantly. I can close my eyes and smell you, see your beautiful face, and almost feel its softness. Baby, you make me so happy and fulfilled. So, when a guy is writing this kind of stuff to you, he's talking the talk, and he's also going above and beyond, and he's doing all these amazing things for and with Kathy, it's no surprise that she really bought into this man. And this is exactly what manipulators do. And like we said before, especially sociopathic ones, and especially when they have a very specific plan in mind. Right. And this relationship was going so well that by 1994... Kathy and Tony both decided to sell their homes because remember they lived across the street from each other and they moved their lives from Nashville to Knoxville, Tennessee. They moved their combined four children to the upper middle class neighborhood of, I'm going to botch this everyone. So I don't want any messages. Tanrara Oeste, Tanrara Oeste in West Knox County. Please God, don't, I don't care. I tried. (laughs) Tanrara Oeste is Spanish and translates to so rare in the West. So with this new move to a new city, Tony sort of took the opportunity to reinvent himself. So it was this phase in his life that he really kicked his spending into high gear. Because remember, Tony had collected upwards of $500,000 in life insurance from dead people around him. And on top of that, Kathy at some point received that million-dollar settlement related to the death of her husband. Plus, they both had sold their homes and, you know combine their lives into one home, and they both worked here and there. So they've got money coming in. The Knoxville News Sentinel interviewed one of Tony and Kathy's new neighbors in Knoxville, and here's what they had to say. They had a big housewarming party and actually sent out flyers, and everybody was eager to welcome them to the neighborhood. People reported that at this party, everything about this couple screamed that they came from a lot of money. This all seems very flashy. It's kind of an odd thing to do, but if you think about it, it's a perfect opportunity to show off, which Tony liked to do. Even more interesting, the neighbors reported having little to do with the couple after their strange party welcoming themselves into the neighborhood. And at this time, associates of the couple recalled that Tony was doing things like going out to dinner and tipping wait staff with $100 bills. He was also making frequent trips to Atlantic City and Vegas because he was a huge gambler. Tony and Kathy had a full-time nanny to tend to their four children, which allowed them to do all of this travel. And outwardly, this is like a movie. Two heartbroken widows who turn their pain and misfortune into a wonderful future with each other. But the truth was anything but. 
And it's no surprise that friends and associates of this couple were curious about the source of their perceived wealth. So people would pry about where this money had originated from. And Tony would make inferences that he was in real estate or a land broker from Nashville. The truth was, as we know, he was mostly unemployed. And we know where the money came from. Insurance payouts from the death of his loved ones or other financial frauds. Occasionally he would work, but it would be retail jobs like the one he had at Dillard's with our first degree Gigi. And Gigi recalls learning about some of the fraudulent activities Tony engaged in even prior to arriving at Dillard's. Tony didn't come into working at Dillard's with a clean slate. Like he had some criminal issues having to do with fraud before he even came to Dillard's. It had to do with he was working at another retail establishment and this was about the time that Amy was pregnant with their child and they needed money. There was something to do with some kind of like fraudulent gift certificates and cashing in fraudulent gift certificates or something similar associated with that. So, you know, I think that's one of those small crimes that he kind of got away with and slid past without any, you know, major punishment. Tony was a chameleon who possessed the ability to reinvent himself over and over and over in order to exploit, manipulate, take advantage of those around him. But here's the thing. Tony actually had to work really hard to make it seem as though he was a successful guy. He made fake letterhead that had Vic Investments printed on the top. And he took out a P.O. box and an address nearby to act as his business address. A search of his computer would later reveal that Tony had several fake resumes that he'd fashioned. Although he never really had employment for long. What was Kathy doing? Well, being the doting mother she was, Kathy fully dedicated herself to volunteer work at the church school that her four children attended. She did this with her time as well as her money. Because police records would reveal that Kathy actually made a $10,000 donation to the school at one point. And plot twist, believe it or not, Tony also involved himself in the church school activities as well, and he would offer to cook for church and school events on several occasions. And this is interesting, because remember Gigi's account in last week's episode, how she was saying the security guard at Dillard's told the staff to never eat anything that Tony cooked and brought to work to share. Very interesting. Very interesting. And I, I'm still dying to know what that security guard knew that Gigi didn't. Because there's got to be a reason that she's, he's saying, never eat anything he brings here in like in this, this urgent tone, you know, not I in a way know. that it's, yeah, not in a way that it's just like yucky, like something mm, is, something's wrong bizarre. with it and okay. him. Yeah. So back to Tony, Kathy and the chronology of their relationship. So the couple tied the knot and I say tied the knot with air quotes around it. And you'll see why in a second on Valentine's day of 1995, and they threw a huge wedding reception in Vegas. There was a white dress, a photographer, dancing, toasting, merriment, the whole nine yards. But in typical Tony fashion, there was an angle at play. Of course, one that wouldn't benefit him financially. So it turns out the couple never officially got married. This was all for show. And that's because if they were to be legally married, Kathy would cease to collect the financial benefits associated with her husband's untimely death. So the wedding was a facade like a symbolic representation of their love. But I also think this is confusing because I would also think that Tony would want to get married to be more uh, like securely tied to her assets. But for whatever reason, at this point, I don't think he had decided to get rid of her yet. Yeah. By all accounts, Kathy and Tony were a couple very much in love. 
and they were liked by their neighbors and friends. But then that pesky bad luck that seemed to follow Tony around all his life started to creep back in. You know, the bad luck that left a trail of death and fraud in its wake. At the end of 1995, Tony and Kathy began telling members of their church that Kathy's health was on the decline, that she was battling terminal cancer. Does this sound familiar? Here's Gigi recounting what Tony told their Dillard's colleagues when they were working together. It was talked about in the store that Tony had cancer. And, you know, of course, everybody has the typical reaction like, oh, that's awful. That's terrible. And it was never said like what kind of cancer he had, but that he was really sick. It was really bad. And then, you know, how like sometimes you're like, oh, you know, I haven't heard anything about Tony lately. I wonder how his health is. Does anybody know? And then the word came like, oh, yeah, like he got better. And I'm um, like, wow. There was no evidence that Tony ever really had cancer back then. So was history repeating itself? And let's think about why people pretend to have illnesses when they really don't. Some do it for sympathy, some do it for attention, or some people do it to manipulate those around them in some way or another. Our theory here is that Kathy was being manipulated by Tony to believe that she did have cancer. And after all, we know that Tony had this charismatic personality to the point where he had convinced people that he could speak to the dead. So our thoughts here are that this whole cancer thing began and Tony had decided that it was time to get rid of Kathy. To him and his sick sociopathic brain, she was worth more to him dead than alive. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on TheRealReal.com. TheRealReal is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. So there was a trip to New York in 1995 where Tony told friends that Kathy would be receiving experimental treatment there. So it's unclear whether she did ever receive that treatment on this trip because the reporting is conflicting. And I don't think anyone really knows. And it's especially difficult to get information about these things due to HIPAA laws that protect people's medical information. By March of 1996, Tony claimed that Kathy's health was still very much on the decline. But we do know that Kathy was treated at a Knoxville hospital called the Fort Sanders Park West Medical Center. But according to a report, she only received treatment for low blood sugar during that visit. But the hospital visit was actually very significant. And that's because after examining her, doctors suspected that Kathy was either being injected or injecting herself with something to bring on this condition. So when they confronted her with this prospect, she denied it. But there's a big question mark here. And the question is, was Tony injecting Kathy 
with something without her knowledge? Or was Kathy under Tony's control and she was manipulated into this scheme right along with him? So there's another question too. If she did know, what did she think the end game for the scheme was? This is a hard one to sort of understand, right? Mm -hmm. So if she is complicit in injecting herself, you know, I want to revisit last week's episode for a second. Uh, Tony and Amy perpetrated a fraud where they both dressed up as royalty. And there's actually footage of this online. And they pretended to be like diplomats and trying to scheme this this, uh, boys club out of money. And you start to wonder, like, how did he get Amy to do that? Yeah. You know, how did, in, in like, what is the end game? Okay, money. But here, pretend to be sick for this scheme. What is the end game? They don't seem to be f- defrauding anyone based on her condition. So, what, at one point, is she like, oh, God, he's like laying the groundwork for my untimely death? Yeah. Well, you also don't, I mean, he could be telling her that he was giving her like B12 shots or something, but then also being like, oh, but pretend to be sick for XYZ reason. Like, you, we don't know what. That's the thing that's like so fascinating about it is like we have no idea what those internal conversations were between the two of them. 100%. So back to the story. A few weeks later on April 16th, Kathy was seen leaving her kids' school after dropping them off, but she failed to pick them up like she usually did. Instead, their babysitter picked up the children. The babysitter then took the kids home and eventually received a strange call from Tony, who said that he was en route to Canada with Kathy. And the reason for this travel was that Kathy could receive experimental cancer treatments at the Toronto University Medical Center up in Canada. And when Tony returned from Canada, he returned alone. When he was asked, he told people that due to the very rare form of cancer, Kathy would have to remain in Canada for a few months. And understandably, Kathy's parents, Fleta and Ray Holiday, grew concerned when they hadn't heard from her. They pressed Tony for more information about where Kathy was so that they could speak directly with her. And two days later, they received a typed note via fax that was allegedly from Kathy that talked of being away in Canada for a number of weeks. So after the first note, the weeks continued to pass. And slowly, Kathy's parents received additional faxes that were allegedly from Kathy. But being Kathy's parents, they were skeptical for several reasons. First of all, they didn't believe that Kathy would ever just abruptly leave her children, you know, and picking up the phone isn't that hard. So they were so skeptical and worried that they actually went to Canada to search for their daughter. When they got there, they did not find her. She was not where she was supposed to be. The notes continued. And one of the later ones suggested that Kathy was now hospitalized, this time for amnesia. When her parents tried to press Tony about where Kathy was, he was nowhere to be found. And it's at this point that Tony first stopped responding to them and then disappeared altogether. Not only that, he left behind his 10-year-old son, Kathy's 10-year-old son, as well as her twin six-year-old girls. He was entered as a fugitive from justice in the National Crime Information Center's computer system. And by this point, another development had come to light. Authorities learned that Kathy had a life insurance policy worth $250,000. And we don't need to tell you who the beneficiary was. Yep, it was Tony. In terms of the faxes Kathy's parents had been receiving, the police would eventually learn that Tony arranged to have a friend in Canada send faxes occasionally to Kathy's parents detailing her medical care to keep them from sounding alarm bells to the police. It was right around this time that media coverage of Kathy's disappearance was starting to pick up steam. Kathy's parents had mounted an extensive media campaign to get her picture in newspapers and on TV. Geraldo Rivera even ran a TV segment of the case people were kind of 
following, I don't know if manhunt is the correct word, but, you know, just the, you know, trying to track him down and get him arrested. Because if he was capable of those things, he was obviously dangerous. The police were looking into Tony and digging deep into his past. The media coverage led to more individuals coming forward with stories about him. And law enforcement, which included the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, or the TBI, they were finally connecting some of the lingering dots connecting his previous crimes. And as the search for Tony was underway, his location was completely unknown. However, authorities learned that Tony had actually returned to the Knoxville area twice. Once three months after Kathy went missing, when he was trying to pick up a $100,000 check from an insurance settlement. Okay, go figure with that one. And as the weeks turned into months, people started to come to a really somber realization that Kathy Beadle was likely dead. And of course, we already know that she was. What was Tony doing while he was on the run? Well, he appeared to waste little time on grief or mourning following Kathy's death. He made numerous trips to Vegas and New York. He spent money with abandon and ran up massive credit card bills. He gambled, he partied, he took limos to clubs and bars. Literally less than two weeks after he killed Kathy, he was having a night on the town, expensive dinner, taking a limo to a ballet. But it's three weeks later where things take a really, really interesting turn for Tony. Law enforcement learned that Tony had taken out an ad in a Tennessee alternative lifestyles newspaper. And this ad described a 34-year-old gay white male, quote, masculine, handsome, and professional, in search of the same or a bisexual white male for, quote, hot times and discreet fun. Replies to the ad were later discovered by police in the P.O. box that Tony had set up for his fake business. Then, about a month after Kathy disappeared, the owner of a consignment secondhand store called Repeat Performance came forward and said that Tony had come to the store with about 70 items of clothing, ranging from cocktail party type attire to Kathy's wedding dress. And he went there with the purpose of selling them. Tony actually told the store owner that his wife had passed away and he was cleaning out her closet. It's a fucking bold thing to do. It's really sad and disgusting, truly. Like selling this woman's wedding dress is just in lying and saying your wife had passed. It's just, it's just awful. And he makes me cringe. So police at the time are learning about all this shady stuff while Tony is still missing. And months would continue to pass with no sign of him. But this time, things were different for Tony. All the signs of foul play were there, clear as day. It wasn't an accidental drowning like with Amy. It wasn't a heart attack out of the blue like with Amy's father. Nor was there a supposed suicide as we saw with Amy's aunt. Kathy was presumed dead, and first-degree murder charges were filed against Tony. As time continued to pass, Kathy's parents took custody of their four children that Tony had abandoned. And about a year after Kathy's disappearance, they began to make plans to sell the couple's home. But before they brought real estate people in, they asked officials to do a comprehensive search of the home. And it's actually kind of confusing that it took law enforcement more than a year to do this. So on March 10th of 1997, forensic specialists from the University of Tennessee went to the home of Tony and Kathy that they once shared. A search of the interior revealed human blood near three sinks in the house. Outside, a specially trained dog alerted searchers to a concrete slab that was present. They smashed through the concrete, and it was there that they made the discovery of Kathy's body, right under their noses the entire time.
There, buried in the backyard and inside a sleeping bag, wrapped in plastic and entombed in concrete, the police discovered the remains of Kathy. Kathy's family's worst fears had become reality. And with this development, the police urged the public to keep an eye out and to protect themselves from Tony Vick, who remained on the run. Here's a news report where one of the lead investigators was interviewed, as well as Kathy's mother, who sounds truly devastated. He's out there. He's probably got another victim by now. We was hoping it wouldn't be in this way. Oh, he knows I'll find him. He knows that I've got enough hate in my heart for him that I'll never give up. He'll pay for what he's done, not just to Kathy, but to all these other women. Kathy's autopsy would reveal that she'd been dead since the previous April. Her remains were surprisingly well-preserved, with her skin remaining intact. Her death was ruled as a homicide. The ME found that her thyroid cartilage had been broken, a telltale sign that she died from manual strangulation. Tony, this psycho, had used his bare hands to kill the woman who trusted and loved him. With the discovery of Kathy in the backyard of her home, the motivation to locate Tony Vick was at an all-time high. And luckily, time was about to run out for Tony. A police officer named Sidney Terrell, who worked for the Egg Harbor, New Jersey Police Department, caught Tony attempting to shoplift a $109 suit from a store called Value City, which was located in the Shore Mall near Atlantic City. Once Tony was in custody, police ran his name, which revealed Tony's warrant for first-degree murder. Real quick with the way he was caught, it, it's such a Robert Durst thing for me. Like, this mm-hmm. guy has mm-hmm. so many channels Robert Durst in so many ways. Robert Durst got caught, what, shoplifting a sandwich from a gas station? Yeah. Yeah. Or like a hot dog or something. Yeah. And the same, like, he killed his wife and people knew but couldn't prove it. The, you know, yeah. Robert Durst. It's very similar, just like the chameleon aspects and just like the tyrannical, like, diabolical nature of these people are very similar. He just thinks he can do anything he wants. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So news of Tony's arrest spread quickly, and it brought relief to Kathy and Tony's neighbors. It's something out of an Alfred Hitchcock movie. So hopefully they'll prosecute him to the fullest extent of the law. So where had Tony been, and what had he been doing? He was, you know, making his way to the East Coast. I know that when he was arrested, I believe he was found to be having a relationship with a man in Atlantic City. That's right. The Tennessean reported that Tony had been living in an $800 a month apartment in the Regency on Pacific Avenue in Atlantic City with a man with whom he had a romantic relationship. The man allegedly didn't know about Tony's past or the charges against him. And Tony gave this guy this whole story about how he was from Atlanta and that his parents had been killed in a car wreck. And a search of where Tony was staying revealed that he was using at least six different aliases. Tony had moved to the area the previous summer, and he briefly moved in with a woman that he was seeing. He was working at a local casino called Bally's Park Place, and he was making $8 an hour. And this is super fucked up. Tony had an office at this place, and he had been keeping a picture of him and Kathy on his desk. And according to police, he had put this picture there to prove to his co-workers that he wasn't gay. And obviously we know he is because he took out that personal ad and was having the responses sent to his P.O. box. And that was just around the time that Kathy, quote unquote, disappeared. So we know that this was something of a double life for him. Right. 
And Gigi, if you recall, believed he was gay from the moment she met him. And apparently she wasn't wrong. And she she questioned her gaydar. And it's spot on, I think. <laughs> so surprisingly, Tony did not fight the extradition back to Tennessee to face charges. And once he was arrested, he was held on a million dollars bond. It was so sad and it was just so horrible. And they brought him back. And I mean, he was, you know, front page photograph on the daily newspaper here. You know, I kind of followed everything that happened with him. And I had this interaction with this guy who could just do the most unspeakable things. Like, I mean, I think killing somebody is obviously one of the most horrible things you can do. But killing someone, killing a a mother and taking a mother away from her children, to me, it's even that much worse. That kind of thing doesn't stop at the person or the immediate relatives or friends. I mean, that kind of that kind of crime just reverberates. The ripple effect just, I don't think, ever stops. And the ripple effect from Tony ran deep because Kathy was not his only victim. And law enforcement was prepared to go after him for his past crimes as well. It's a good wrap-up to a very intense case. It's going to prove uh, a lot of other bodies. I think, uh, I think wherever Tony Vick goes, there's people that die. Tony's prosecution would be swift, and the state was sure, based on all the evidence they had, not to mention Tony's track record, that they would secure a conviction for the murder of Kathy Beadle. But they would never get that chance, because in an unexpected twist, Tony pleaded guilty for the murder of Kathy. He was given a sentence of life in prison for the murder of Kathy Beadle, and he was granted the chance for parole. The sentence is the max he would have received had he been convicted at trial because the state never intended to seek the death penalty. The sentence ensured that he'd spend at least 25 years in prison before becoming eligible for release. But of course, the prosecutors weren't worried about that because they knew charges in the case of Amy, Tony's first wife, were coming up. One month after pleading guilty, this guy doubled down on the level of piece of shit that he actually was. He conducted a media interview from prison and he tried to backpedal out of his guilty plea. And it's at this point he introduces a new story about what he said actually happened to Kathy. So what Tony said was that he found Kathy dead in the guest bedroom of their home. He said that next to her body were two empty pill bottles and three empty syringe bottles. He claimed that Kathy died from a self-induced drug overdose. So in this story, instead of calling the police after discovering Kathy, he decided to cover up her death instead and claimed a fear that he would be a suspect in her death, which is why he did it. He also said he couldn't stand the thought of telling her children that their mother was dead. And let's pretend for a second that this is really what happened. Why then would Tony plead guilty in Kathy's first-degree murder just a month before? According to Tony, he said that he pleaded guilty because he felt mostly responsible for Kathy's death, admitting that his wife was indeed ill and that he could have and should have done more to help her. Okay, so there's a big problem with this story. Kathy's autopsy revealed injuries to her neck. So how does Tony explain this? He attempted to by claiming that the injuries that Kathy suffered occurred post-mortem when he was moving Kathy to the hole that he dug in the backyard or by the weight of the concrete slab that he covered her with. Now, Tony's new story behind bars didn't change the reality of his conviction in Kathy's murder. And authorities weren't done holding him accountable. He was soon indicted for the first-degree murder of his first wife, Amy. The Franklin police, who had originally handled Amy's case, always suspected foul play, but they just couldn't prove it. 
that was different now. Amy's loved ones hoped that finally she would get the justice she deserved. But unfortunately, that wouldn't exactly be the case. In an unexpected move, Tony pleaded guilty in best interest. To be clear, this is not an admission of guilt. It's similar to an Alfred plea. The plea is one in which the defendant does not admit guilt, but does admit that there is sufficient evidence on which to gain a conviction. The plea was a cop-out, which kept Tony from receiving the death penalty. Amy never got her day in court, and justice was not served on her behalf. Tony caused so much pain and so much destruction, and the motive seemed clear. I would think motive was definitely money with Kathy Beadle. I don't know about Amy, unless he just needed to get Amy out of the way so that he could get to Kathy. Tony would be in prison for life. But if you think that he just sat there quietly and served his time with integrity, you would be wrong. Tony wrote a book called Secrets from a Prison Cell, a convict's eyewitness accounts of the dehumanizing drama of life behind bars. The book details, quote, the violent, even horrific incidents that occur in prison, incidents mostly hidden in the shadows, away from public awareness. And if you're wondering if Tony profits from the book, he doesn't. The proceeds go towards a prison reform group. Tony Vick is a self-serving narcissist who's only writing a book on the subject for attention, to manipulate those around him, and in an attempt to improve his pathetic circumstances behind bars. This dude killed those who were around him, those that trusted him, and collected nearly a million dollars in the process. This guy is diabolical and dangerous. And you know what? These guys are everywhere. Who knows? They may be working right next to you at your retail job. I still bat around that whole concept of evil. Is something evil? Is somebody evil? I just think there's this unbelievable narcissism and ego in just that what's in it for me? What's what's my comfort? What's the next thing that I can do that I'm doing for me that covers what my desires are? I can't believe that there could really be actual love in a in a person like that. I think that kind of person is just really devoid of love. And that's that's chilling. And that's when I think to myself, like, wow, I work with this person. We live and work and interact with those kind of people among us all the time. And we probably just very, very rarely ever know that. All Amy and Kathy wanted was the ability to love Tony and have him love them in return. But that's not what happened. Women are murdered all the time by men who promise and pretend to love them. And it's a cold reminder for all of us that love is undoubtedly a risk, whether it's your heart that's on the line, your life savings, or even your life. You love someone, you put your trust into the hope that they're a good person. When somebody turns out to not be a good person and can go down that path, I mean, God, that's like a... It's like just a gut punch in your belief in humanity. Something like that can really can really destroy hope. You know, you want to feel good about people and it can kind of contribute to destroying that. When I hear a, a great story to somebody doing something really sweet or kind or generous, then I'm like, okay, <laughs> deep breath, because that that exists and that's what's more important.
All right. Well, a huge thank you to Gigi for being our first degree for the past two weeks. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell or you know somebody that has a story to tell, please email us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Billy Jensen at Alexis Linkutter at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group. We are talking true crime all the time and check back tomorrow right in our feed. We're going to have a brand new episode of Killing Time. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. Keep your friends close. But not that close. <laughs> we did happy it. Celebrate Your Failures Day. Oh my God. Happy No Bra Day, bitches. Ooh, burn it to the ground. Bring your teddy bear one day. I thought you said titty bear. <laughs> titty bears too. They need burn their bras also. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring and creating original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, producing and writing by Taylor Rogers, and Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for this episode are The Tennessean, Leaf Chronicle, The Jackson Sun, The Knoxville News Sentinel, The Associated Press, WATE TV6, Knoxville, Johnson City Press, Court Documents, and as always, our first three guest is always our largest source. <laughs>